You can be seated. This is the time in our service when we press into the preaching of the word. Would you pray with me before we do this? I was reminded this week how so very few of you will will preach sermons in your life. So there's some stuff about it that you don't know until you start doing it. It is so tempting to lie when you get up here. It is so tempting to exaggerate. It is so tempting to kind of just say things that sound good whether or not they're actually true. It is so tempting to get up and to speak in a way that you're saying, I hope that people like me when I'm done. A lot of those things have been going through my heart this week um, as I get ready to get up and stand in front of God's people with the incredible stewardship to open his word with them. So let's just pray together that God would be gracious to your pastors and to the members of the church as we press into the preaching of the word. Let's do that together. Father, this is the only time in the week when a different kind of language is spoken and a church gives herself to your words. And I rejoice that this is happening in every language, in every uh, nation in the world today as folks get together to come on Jesus' day and sit under the declaring of Jesus' word. But we are fragile speakers. We are fragile hearers. There is so much offense in the gospel message. I pray that we would take that offense right today with repentance, with gladness that you do speak and you do save. Father, the tens of thousands of people that this church, that your church exists for who are not here, I pray that in some way, through your transforming us, through the witness of this church, through your gracious providence, they too would come to hear and accept the message of the gospel. But I know that begins with us hearing and accepting it in the life of the church. So I pray that you would be gracious as we give ourselves to that today. Would you hear our prayer for these things and answer, I pray. Amen. So we've heard this. Uh, text of scripture read, we are preaching through the biblical book of Acts. Here's how we have framed preaching through this together. We have said that this book is the story of the relentless advance of the gospel. In this first few months of preaching through the book of Acts, we're asking this question, how in the world did this little band of absolute nobodies trigger a global move of the grace of God. How did that happen? That's what we're asking. That's the story that's being unfolded for us. One of the most lucid and succinct and helpful answers to that question that I have read in getting ready to preach through the book of Acts is this one right here. This was written by a guy named Francis Schaeffer, who was a Christian apologist from a generation ago. Here's what he said. You cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. Okay, that is very helpful right there. What he's saying is that as we see the gospel advancing in the story of the book of Acts, it always does so through this one-two punch. Here it is. Gospel doctrine and gospel community. Gospel preaching and gospel 
living. People like us hearing and believing doctrine about who God is and who we are and what He has done. And then those people living together in tight, holy community. He's saying when those two realities are held tightly together, look out. A church of very ordinary, sinful people like us suddenly can become this vibrant, bold, magnetic, holy and happy and prophetic place where people can be saved and they can be discipled and they can be swept into the kingdom of God. Throughout this book, there is doctrine and there is community together. Okay, now as sinners, we fade very, very quickly from keeping these two together. If I set up a two-by-two like my friend Gordon loves, you'd, you'd see it, but I didn't want to confuse you with the screen. One way we can fade from this is to say no to gospel doctrine and no to gospel community. So this is much of American culture right now, right? Narcissistic, individualistic, and heretical. That's us. Forget about Bible doctrine. Forget about gospel community. I'm doing my own thing and believing what I want. We don't want to go there. That's not magnetic, attractive, powerful church life. But we can also fade in either direction of either one of these. So a church can also go all doctrine and very little or no community. I'm going to address this one next week. We're doing the one-two punch. But that's where a church gets its gospel theology down, but that theology does not issue in a holy life. There's no holiness, there's no humility, there's no generosity, there's no unity. And a church can end up telling horrible lies about God, even when its confessional statement is pristine. We're going to deal with that error next week. The other way that we can fade, and this is the one we're dealing with today, is that for the church to go all community and to leave behind doctrine. So you know that this is the fad, the tendency, the trajectory of the church in Melrose and in greater Boston. It is basically in this last generation or two a wholesale abandoning of doctrine in the name of community. There's all kinds of words for this, reconciling congregations. That's the new code word if you happen to hear that one. This is saying doctrine divides us. So let's stop with the creeds and the confessions and the catechisms and let's not deal with the categories of the holiness of God or the sinfulness of men and women or the cross of Jesus Christ or repentance and faith. Let's just love everybody and we'll do our potlucks and our craft fairs, and our labyrinth walks. Let's just have community and get away from doctrine. That's where we are in in the day that you happen to live in. The problem is that we do not see that kind of separation in the book of Acts. You do not see community unhinged from doctrine. Instead, what you see is Gospel doctrine animating, fueling, shaping 
defining, propelling gospel community. Every single community in the book of Acts, every single church that is planted always begins the same way. How do they all begin? They begin with an individual or a household or a city of people beginning to hear and believe and then love and embrace gospel doctrine. For example, in a book called Acts, it is actually shocking how much of this book is just people sitting and someone teaching. It's got this weird name, Acts, but a third of this book is actually no one acting at all, it's just teaching. If you wanted to do the math, there's a thousand verses or so, and over 350 of them are from long or short speeches being given about Jesus. What is Luke trying to tell you? Gospel doctrine propels gospel community. Next week, when we read the beautiful description of the very first things that the first church did together, what is the first item on the list, the very first thing that they gave themselves to? Here's how Luke says it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I love that. First item. What is Luke trying to tell you? That gospel doctrine is what propels gospel community. That's the first item, and then look at all the other beautiful things that come from that. And of course, I'm pressing this with you because this is our text today. The church is birthed from a downpour of the Spirit of God, and what is the first thing that happens? Is it a potluck? I love potlucks. We're having a, what do you call it when you make the roast beef and then you shred it? Pulled pork. We're having a pulled pork gospel community lunch today. I can't wait. I'm all about that. Is that the first thing that happened when the Spirit downpoured? Was it a church fair? Was it a labyrinth walk? What was it? It was a sermon. Peter stands up with the apostles and he preaches. What is Luke trying to tell us? Gospel doctrine is the first punch. That is what fuels gospel community. Okay, I want us to believe that, and today I want to use this sermon to get down in our souls what the content or the essentials of this gospel doctrine is that propels us into happy and holy community together. We get to do that because the sermons in the book of Acts are what we call representative sermons. Do you know what I mean by this? Uh, what I mean is Luke did not have super quill flash hands. He was not sitting and listening to the sermons and manuscripting them down word for word. Luke spent years with these apostles, these preachers, and listened to sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. And he became very familiar with the kind of things that they would say when they preached Christ. And so in Peter's first sermon, it's a very long sermon, Luke is capturing the things that he said on this day and the themes that would be thread throughout the apostolic preaching, the apostolic doctrine. If we can get a feel for what Peter pressed, we'll know what it is that we need to press in order for that first punch to be strong in the life of our church. 
So what I'm going to do up here is just put the last boom at the very end of the sermon. It's like a synthesis, a summary statement, the big idea, instead of putting up all the words that Peter preached, and we'll work through this. So here's how he ended, and this is where he was driving the whole time. He ends with this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. All right, let's chop this up together. I'm going to put the big phrases up here and we'll talk through them. So he starts with, let all the house of Israel. Let the house of Israel. So this helps us get the context. Right now I am preaching to Bostonians. If you gave me 10 minutes, I could tell you all about yourselves, at least if you grew up around here like me. There's a specific type of person listening. This day, it was the house of Israel. This sermon was given in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. City of Jerusalem means God's city. Day of Pentecost means one of the three really big feast days when God's people would come from everywhere into Jerusalem. So this would have felt a ton like St. Anthony's Feast in the North End. Have you ever been to that festival? It's wild, right? Like 15 times too many people pack into Hanover Street and the surrounding area, and there's sausage stands all over the place, and there's fireworks going off, and there's a big idol of Mary coming through the streets with dollar bills taped to it. Am I the only one who's been in the North End for St. Anthony's Festival? Like, oh, is it? My bad. The idol is Anthony, not Mary, but the dollar bills are on him, and he's being paraded to the streets. Have you been there? And it's so crowded, and everybody's there, and certainly every Italian in the city of Boston is there. That's what this would have been like. Every Jew who could possibly get to Jerusalem is there. This is why the Father in His grace chose this day for the Spirit to come and this sermon to be preached. What that means is, these are the older covenant people of God. These are the ones to whom the promises had been made, I will send you a Savior, a Messiah, a King, and a Christ. And what was this generation supposed to do when the Christ appeared? They were supposed to welcome him, follow him, align themselves with him, put their trust in him. That's who Peter is talking to. It's the house of Israel. Then he says this, let all the house of Israel know for certain. Okay, what's that right here? This is what I've been pressing so far. This is called doctrine, truth. Now, I know this is a very troubling phrase for postmodern Bostonians like us. Here's what we say in our day. Oh, no, you can't know anything for certain. That's the great dogma of our day, right? You've heard that? If you've passed through undergraduate school, you have heard that. To which any intelligent fourth grader says what? Are you certain? Please be aware of this. At the very center of the postmodern rebellion against God is this big, fat inconsistency. We co-opt the language of truth to deny the truth. We We live by this maxim that there are no maxims. 
I know you've been in English 101 class where they have said, no one is allowed to make any pronouncements in this class. No pronouncements. And we use a pronouncement to make the pronouncement that there are no pronouncements. We are liars and we are fools. Thankfully, the apostle Peter and the other apostles were not postmodern Bostonian men. There was no such silliness or hypocrisy or deceit in them. They were witnesses to the truth. And so this is what Peter says. I'm not expressing an opinion here. I am not just making a suggestion. This is not like a conversation about who should have won that Grammy Award. Your opinion, my opinion. This is not a poetry slam at the Lizard Lounge in Cambridge. I am talking truth. Absolute, take it to the bank, the way things are, truth. You can know these things for certain. Okay, I know that's strange to our ears, but this is the way that this preaching was done. Okay, now here comes his gospel. All good gospel doctrine begins where? It all begins with God and who he is and what he has done. So he says, here's what you can know for certain. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Okay, football analogy. Any local people around back in the day when Drew Bledsoe gave way to Tom Brady? Do you remember this? I know you remember this because your face was painted red, white, and blue, and you were running around the streets like a crazy person. Drew Bledsoe was running out of bounds, and he got hammered by a linebacker on the Jets, and he got injured. And Tom Brady, the young, handsome guy, cleft chin, you could fit a quarter in that thing over here. He became the quarterback, and at the start of the playoffs, everyone was like, Bledsoe's healthy, but Brady's awesome. Who will be the quarterback of this team? And Bill Belichick, the senior authority, the coach came out, and he said to the world and to his team, Tom Brady is my guy. And we're also thankful about that because we got three, almost five Super Bowls out of that pronouncement. Tom Brady is my guy. What is the responsibility of everyone on that team when that pronouncement is made from that authority? I love you, Drew, but I'm in with who the boss said is the guy. That's what this text is saying to us. God the Father, in fulfillment of his promises of old, announced as clearly as possible, Jesus of Nazareth is my guy. He is my Lord. He is my Christ. He is the one. The Father attested to the covenant people, this is your Savior. In his sermon, Peter says it in three different ways. He says it like this, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. Feel that? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What's he saying there? You know the miracles and the signs and the wonders? That was the Father saying, this is my beloved son. This is my guy. In that story, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In the life of Christ, the Father was attesting to him. Then Peter says this in his sermon, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. The resurrection of Christ is God the Father putting his stamp of approval on the Son and saying, this is my guy. 
He lived the life you were supposed to live, and as a reward, what I promised was that he would not see decay, but that he would live the first fruits of life forever. Jesus risen is God saying, this is my guy. And then thirdly, Peter says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he is the one who has poured out this spirit on you. He is saying, we saw with our own eyes Jesus translated into the heavens. That was the Father saying, he will never die. He's coming to the right hand of my throne. He is my God. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Okay, feel that with me? The beauty of Christ, the power of Christ, the authority of Christ, the victory of Christ, the glory of Christ. This is where all good gospel doctrine begins, helping you to see God in Christ. Okay, then there's a second element to gospel doctrine. It starts with the declaration of who he is, but then it moves to a very clear, no holds barred, honest declaration of who we are. Here's how Peter says this, get ready. It's terribly offensive. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, let's make sense of the accusation first before we feel the offense of this. Here's this generation of God's people. They're supposed to be on the lookout for the Christ. All these signs pointing to this time, this man. They're supposed to receive him when he appears. But instead, what did they do? Instead of standing with him, they stood apart from him and they rejected him. Okay, illustration. Back when I was in college, Grace and I went to the same college. Let me rephrase that. Grace went to college, and I just followed her to whatever college she was going to. So we ended up at the same college. It was a Christian school. The president of the college came one time to speak at our church. We got the job of picking him up at the airport. So they give 19-year-old Matthew Cruz the keys to the church vehicle. It was not a sexy vehicle, but... That was a big trust to me. I could still barely keep the thing between the lines. So I'm cruising down with the radio on. Grace is by my side on top of the world. Logan Airport, Terminal C. I forget the airline. We pick up the president. How do I act when this man comes out of the place with his luggage? I was warm. I was kind. I was humble. I was receptive. My name is Matthew Cruz. I'm a freshman at your school. I'm delighted that you're here. Can I take that bag? Would you like a drink? Is the temperature good for you? Where can I take you? The hotel at the church. You tell me I'm here to welcome and receive you. That's what you do, right? Now, picture if I had gone all good fellas on him, picked him up at the airport, like cracked him in the gut, threw him in the trunk of this car, Drove him down to the Mystic River where it spills into Chelsea underneath the Tobin Bridge over there. Beat on him in a little while, put a bullet in his head, tied some heavy things around his ankles, and threw him in the Mystic River. Never would do that. That that is bizarre to even imagine that's how you would treat someone who was for you and sent to you to encourage you to do something well for you. You would never do that. There's a hundred things wrong with that completely backwards response that we may have had. That is the exact kind of thing that this generation did with Jesus. That's it. It's horrible. 
We see this most clearly at the last day of his life. He is in the garden praying, and the disciples are supposed to stand with him. And what do they do? They fall sound asleep. Then his enemies come in with their torches and their clubs and their chains, and there's a little scuffle, and his disciples, all of them, run and abandon him. During that trial, no one stands with Jesus. Everyone is against him. Peter is as close as anyone else, and he's hiding out, denies him, denies him, denies him. The next morning, Jesus is put before the Roman governor, wicked, evil Roman governor. And the Roman governor says to the people of God, the house of Israel, here is Jesus of Nazareth. What would you have me do with him? I am ready to free him and give him to you. And what do they do? They say, we don't want him. He says, well, what do you want to do with him? And they shout, crucify him, crucify him. That's the bullet in Chelsea and the Mystic River. That is so twisted and crooked. It's exactly, actually exactly what he says at the end of his sermon. He says, you need to save yourself from this what? Twisted generation. That's the word scolio. It's where we get the word scoliosis from. You know what scoliosis is? That's when your back, which is supposed to be strong and firm, gets all crooked and bent out of place. That's what this is, a perverse and a wicked, bent response to the Son of God. Notice what Peter does not say with that background. He does not say, this Jesus whom they crucified. That's not what he says, is it? He stands up before everyone, and he says, that's who Jesus was, and here's what happened. You, you crucified him. Earlier in the sermon, he uses the verb slew, slew him. That's the word for like slaughtering a lamb whom you crucified. Okay, this is the second thing that all good gospel doctrine does. It tells us the truth about who we are. This is one of the reasons in our day that we generally hate gospel doctrine. It is offensive. I'll ask it like this. What's the most offensive book that you have ever read? Whether you finished it or not, you got started. Just so offensive that you were like, these words are horrible and I'm not even finishing Fifty Shades of Grey, is that what popped into anybody's head? Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler's rubbish. Christopher Hitchens, God is not great. I read that, it was offensive, it was great to read, to hear how someone thinks who denies and opposes Christ. Totally Zach, the unauthorized biography of Zach Hansen, that was highly offensive in several ways. Hansen Brothers, no, okay. Whatever your answer is, I pause there because if the immediate answer that did not pop to your head was the Bible, then you've either not read the Bible or you've only read a few select passages of the Bible. There is no text that has ever been written that is more offensive to the sensibilities of a Bostonian than the Bible. Now, that's not because there is something wrong with the words of Scripture. These words are infused with perfection 
and beauty and truth and accuracy, and that is the problem. (laughs) And so what Scripture does, or clear gospel announcement does, page after page, story after story, sermon after sermon, word after word, it exposes us for who we are. It calls us out. It shines this bright and heavenly light on that dark and dingy closet that we hide out in from the undeniable reality and and the holy demands and the majestic glory of God. And when the light of gospel doctrine, the light of Scripture hits us, our first reaction is to do what? Always. It's to recoil and to be offended. I don't want that. Think of it like this. When you were a teenager, did you ever stay up late like watching the big game or CSI or you were just addicted to Wheel of Fortune or something like that and you just were up too late? And then the next day, your father comes barging in the room at about 7.15 a.m. and he throws the blinds open. What was your first response, you sinful teenagers? What was it? What are you doing? Why are you messing with my sleep? I don't want light right now. I want to remain in this dark, stanky, nasty dungeon of a room. I'm tired. And what does your dad say to you in that moment? If he's holy. If he's not holy, he may say some other things. What does he say to you if he's holy? He says, I'm throwing this light on you because I love you and because it's time to wake up and to walk out into the world and live the life that God intends for you to live today for his glory and his joy. Wake up. Wake up. At least that's what I say, and they still don't really know what I'm saying. That's how the offense of the gospel works. Please hear this. God, the Father, loves you too much to let you sleepwalk through life, hellbound in the dark grip of your sin. And so he speaks. And by his Spirit, he illuminates, he lights up those words, and they crash onto our souls in all of their offensive glory, and our first response is to say, no, not me, I don't want it. I don't want those words, I don't like those words, but if we would just allow God to speak, allow our eyes to get adjusted to his light, we would find life there. That's why any faithful preacher continues to put before you who God is and who you are. It's offensive, but it's for your good. That's exactly what we see in this text. Peter says, hear who God is and what he has done. Here's who you are and what you have done. And the light of that truth cascades upon them. And what is their response? Here it is. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Okay, this is the end toward which all good gospel doctrine drives us. It helps its hearers realize, oh man, the way that things are is not okay. Something has to change. And when you get to this response, you are ready for the third and the final element of gospel doctrine that we see throughout the book of Acts. And here it is. Peter said to them, repent. 
and be baptized, every single one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is that not beautiful and shocking and amazing? Here's how we say it. The cross of Christ was done by you. I mean, I know that is offensive and heavy, but it's true. It's true. The cross of Christ was done by you. But then we never stop talking. What do we say next? The cross of Christ was done for you. Both of those together. It was done by you, but it was also done for you. Somehow, and this is the great mystery of our faith, the cross was not just because of you, but it was for you. God in his wisdom and his power and his goodness and his grace, he turned what was meant for evil for eternal good. Think of that. The worst sin ever committed in the history of the world, the murder of the Son of God, becomes the means for the announcement of grace the announcement of forgiveness, the giving of God to those of us who are so estranged from him. This is the doctrine that births and undergirds and propels the community of the church. And Luke says to us at the end that 3,000 individuals heard the word of his grace and they received it. And the ones who had separated themselves from Christ, what did they do? They turned. That's what repent is. And they were baptized. That's your way of saying, I killed Christ, but that was not just by me. It was for me. And now in the waters of baptism, I am identifying with Jesus. I know this is late. I know it should have been the first response of my heart. But I today am turning from unbelief. And I am identifying with the one who has been made both Lord and Christ. They repent and they believe and they are baptized. And that's where gospel community is born. In the believing and the loving and the embracing of gospel doctrine. Okay, application. The first one is this, and it's always this. It's you. The work of God is done in the world by converting individual men and individual women to the grace of Jesus Christ. Here's who Jesus is. You need to own that that's who he is, and you need to own that you crucified him. And I mean that in the theological sense, of course, right? We sing that beautiful hymn, it was my sin that held him there. It was to atone for our sins that the cross had to happen. We are culpable for that. You need to own that. When I was born again in that season, it was the first time for me that these things had ever come together in my heart. I knew about the cross, but I never knew until an April night on Revere Beach Parkway that the cross was done by me, and in God's grace, my eyes were able to see, whoa, I am a sinner. And I never connected the dots that the cross was done for me until that night. And I mean in weeping and repentance and tears and joy, I was born 
Again, that's how this works. You own that the cross was done by you, but then you believe that the cross was done for you. And I don't just mean in a theological sense. You live in just as twisted of a generation as the one that we're reading about today. You know this, right? What an opportunity that God has given you to say, I will not stand with the twisted generation. I will straighten myself out and stand and identify with Jesus. You understand what would happen if Jesus of Nazareth showed up in the flesh in greater Boston culture. You do, right? How how do we say it? It's vernacular now because of this truth, but we say what? Oh, they would crucify him. Can you imagine what would be said on social media about Jesus if he just said the same exact things word for word that he said during his ministry on earth? Can you imagine? Can you imagine his words about marriage? Can you imagine his words about the image of God and the wonders of children? Can you imagine his words about money? Can you imagine his words about community? Can you imagine just one of those things being blasted out in American culture? What would happen? We say they would crucify him. There would be no tolerance for Jesus of Nazareth in Boston culture. Why? Because like every generation, we are a sinful, crooked, twisted generation. And so here's the most pressing question in your life, in your life. Are you going to stand with a morally crooked generation in their rejection of the Son of God, or will you stand with Jesus in repentance, in baptism, in being a disciple of His? That same question, remember the text? Repent and be baptized, and then what did He say? Every one of you. And if you have never repented and been baptized, I implore you from all the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to align with Jesus, to receive his grace, to stand with him. It's the call of God on you. And that is never just an individual singular thing, although it begins there and it must happen there for each of us and our children. But this is also a we truth. This is what we do in the life of this church continually, over and over and over and over and over again as Jesus' people. Here it is. In sermons, in gospel community nights, in our friendships, in our leadership development tracks, we open our Bibles, we read Scripture, we declare to each other Christ in His beauty, in His power, in His authority, in His grace. Christ. And then we own the fact that we repeatedly have failed to live the way that we are called to live. Let the Scriptures school you. That's what we say. Let the Scriptures bring you to see your need before God. And then we announce to each other the word of His grace, and we repent, and we believe. We live a life of repentance. If you remove everything that I've said, if you remove gospel doctrine from the heart of what it means to be Jesus' people, and this has happened up and down the streets of greater Boston, you lose everything that gives energy and animation and direction and definition to your life and to the life of our community. 
And so this text of Scripture helps us to make a decision as individuals and as a church to say that one-two punch, I'm going to love, I'm going to receive, I'm going to believe, I'm going to revel in sound gospel doctrine, and that is going to propel me into life for God's glory and for the good of our community. All right, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for a church that loves to just sit and hear the word of your grace, a church that understands that the thing that propels everything else is the truth, the for certain fact of what God has done in Christ to save a people. Father, I confess how unbelievably tempting it is to align myself with this generation I want to be liked, I want to be applauded, I want to be seen as someone who is not a crazy fool for Jesus. I want to avoid persecution wherever possible. I pray that you would put steel in my back and in the back of this church to say we will not be twisted, crooked, or bent. We will do what is right, which is to receive Jesus in all of his glory with all of our hearts. I pray that you would tell this story in the lives of people in this room. I pray that as we press toward baptism, many of us who have never repented, believed, and been baptized would do so in the tank in this room for your glory. And I pray that you would spark a movement of gospel community through the faithful embrace of gospel doctrine. Hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen.